If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 will be in verses 20 uh, through chapter 9, verse 7. So Genesis chapter 8 in verse 20 reads this way. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Let's pray really quick. Uh, Father, we do come to you asking that you would show us your glory. We ask for more of you, Jesus, and we ask this by your spirit. Amen. So on August 6th and 9th, 1945, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The two bombings killed close to 430,000 people, most of which were civilians. Over the four months after the bombs were dropped, roughly 300,000 people suffered major consequences ranging from death to severe illness from the lingering effects of the bomb. Evil acts by one country had ripple effects on other countries, leading to this infamous moment in history. So I'm not making a claim on whether it was right or wrong to bomb um, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but I am thinking about the desolation the ripple effects, and the intentions of man in the event of this magnitude. See, a bombing and the flood narrative have some overlap. Evil intentions were rampant. The ripple effects of the fall were affecting everyone and everything. Chaos affected countless lives and the world while the silence of of desolation met the survivors. So in Genesis 8, 
20 through 9, 7, we are exposed to the aftermath of the flood where humanity had become so corrupt that God had to intercede. And as Noah ascends from the belly of the ark to stare the desolation in the face, our text tells us that the intentions of man were still evil, even after the flood. So like those in the text now, we too still face into the intentions of man being evil. So, but just a moment before we kind of dig in a little bit more, there are concepts within our culture um, that give man a moral standing that is neutral, uh, that gives man a moral standing that is good, but he makes bad choices, uh, that gives man a moral standing that is good, but he's affected by his context. Therefore, he makes the decisions he makes. But let's remember, um, the Bible makes sin the issue. And sin is at the very root of the heart of man. And that sin makes us both villains and victims. The Bible's depiction of human nature in the end is sin courses through our veins. So there isn't necessarily a standing of man is morally neutral. No, in the, in the sight of one who is righteous, one who is holy, one who intended for something to be created a certain way, man is missing the mark. Man is unholy. Man is sinful. But intentions are often expressed through actions. And the story of scripture draws us into this world, a very complex world, um, that we see from Genesis 3 on, where the intentions of man are always one way or the other. And the bridge that connects this world we inhabit to the world of scripture is what lies in the heart of man. So death, decay, deceit, and sin, which sin, just for a, a quick definition, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, leaving no um, wiggle room for nuance there. And that colors the backdrop of our text and our world. So the motivation of the flood narrative is shown in the matters of the heart, which God expressed at the beginning of the flood narrative as human hearts are increasingly wicked, so wicked it grieved his heart. So we weren't made actually to experience this, to see or live in the shadow of death, the sickness of sin, or the intentions of evil that roam the halls of our hearts. We weren't made for it. This world wasn't intended for that. There should be no anticipation of death, like a storm rolling in on a hot summer day. We shouldn't experience facing the ripple effects of poor decisions, actions, or intentions. See, we were created for the cascading effect of a connection to life. But stories like the one that we're exploring today are meant to do something to us collectively, to us as a whole, to God's people. First and foremost, it shapes our identity 
So when we read it, we think about what it does to our identity. And as it shapes our identity, it also shows us descriptive features acting as a mirror for us to say, okay, is my identity being shaped this way? Where is it off? And a paradigmatic or a paradigm essentially giving us a way to see the pattern and shape for a life of faith. So as we approach this text, chunk by chunk, um, what questions should we be asking as a community of faith? What should we be saying? And I'm gonna pose this to us. Here's the, the big question. In a world of death, what can bring new life? In a world of death, what can bring new life? So let's look at verses 20 through 22. Then it said, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So this scene opens up with utter desolation. Noah comes out of the ark. The land might be dry, but it isn't the world that Noah remembered it as. But in the midst of this desolation, what's the first thing that Noah does? He builds an altar. And why does he build an altar? Was it because he foresaw the flood coming? Was it because he came up with the idea to build an ark with all of its details and intricacies to collect the animals, to shut his family inside? Did he even shut himself in the ark? And did he steer it through the storm? No, no. He steps off the ark to the God who shut him in and he worships. So in the midst of desolation, Noah steps off the ark to worship. So the scene switches quickly though from Noah to God and it sticks to God the entire way through our text. But it's not flippant. So we must pay attention to the detail in the phrase, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. So let's stop and consider how this phrase sets the tone for the remainder of the text. A tone of pleasure, of satisfaction, and of genuine ease, God smelled the pleasing aroma. Like the smell of your favorite scented candle during the holiday season. And I know you know what that feels like. Take that scent in and be like, ah, and settle in and be at ease. This is what we're seeing with God. The word for pleasure here is nikoak in the Hebrew. Noah's name is Noach in the Hebrew. So here we see a play on words. Noah's name means rest. 
God sees a pleasing or comforting aroma, nihoak. There's a play there. God rests because he smells the sacrifice that could essentially be said, God smelt the Noahic sacrifice. So one man's sacrifice makes all the difference. And here's one of the impetus for the entire Bible narrative is that God knows all things. He understands all things. He experiences all things that man has to offer and not a single thing surprises him or misses him. And in his heart, because he smells a sacrifice pleasing to him, he says, I will never again. So based on the comforting aroma of a single clean sacrifice, never again. Human sin only inflicts pain upon God because he chooses to graciously humble himself and become involved with us. So this isn't the first time or the last time that we will hear pleasing aroma or sense in our gut that this sounds really familiar, that we should be aware we should be sensing something here. So our hearts should leap for joy to, as to what these two words communicate to us. Not only can we walk the halls of the Old Testament and see upwards of 45 different times that God smells a sacrifice and the pleasing aroma, but when we come to the beautiful canvas and we stop and observe what's happening, we begin to see the mosaic of the face of Jesus. As you walk through these halls and you look at the art and you think, okay, there's a pleasing sacrifice. There's a pleasing sacrifice. There's a pleasing sacrifice. But if you take the step back, they're all bleeding together to give us the picture of Jesus. It's here we see Jesus clearly and we hear the chorus of the saints who have bowed at the altar of his ultimate pleasing sacrifice saying, as Paul says in Philippians 4:18, we walk in love as you Christ loved us and gave yourself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So in a world of death, what can bring new life? An aroma of a sacrifice pleasing to God. If Christ is the fragrant offering, then let's not turn to other aromas to get God's attention, to acquire God's favor or cover up the stench of death. But you might think uh, this seems too good to be true, just a pleasing aroma, a sacrifice, like, Does only the scent of the sacrifice really fix the desolation around us? Well, let's keep looking together. So look with me at chapter nine, verses one through three. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. Now at this point, I could just make a case for veganism going out the door and 
now we get to eat meat. But that's not, I think, the total point here for this text. So the divine speech in this scene actually shifts from the aroma of the sacrifice to the blessing of a position. God blesses Noah and his sons from a place of deep satisfaction. And if you begin to have a great sense of deja vu here, it's actually because you're picking up the narrator's intent. So here before us, we have a clear parallel to the sixth day of creation. But instead of this narrative building off of the original creation, it's set up as a recreation. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So desolation isn't in this narrative isn't the end of all things, but it's actually the beginning of new things. It's like the lyrics of that infamous song, Closing Time by Semisonic. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. But this beginning has come to us with some minor detail shifts from the previous. If you remember in the previous scene, God chooses never again to curse the ground because of man. This is a direct connection to the curse on the ground that God made in Genesis chapter three that Adam had to toil on. And also God recreates the relationship between humans and animals from simply dominion to fear. So now when you hear the word fear, it's, it's not as it usually is portrayed across the biblical text. It's not awe or worship. It's actually trepidation. It's actually a fear of man. Like the way you want your dog to pay attention or to get out of the way or, and it puts its legs or it puts its tail between its legs. That sort of fear is what has been put between man and the animals because the first round didn't go as God had intended it because the intentions of man were evil and and corruption had increased. So a way to approach this portion of the text is actually like entering a glassblower's studio. Um, And as you come to look through the window, you see the maker take an old glass vase. Have you seen glassblowers do this stuff? It's incredible. You can see them take an old shard, dirty or disformed glass vase, put the glass in 200,000 degrees of heat, submerging it until it melts. And then after minutes, the maker takes a rod and he takes the molten glass on the other end of the rod pulls it out, puts it down on the table, and then begins to blow on the other end of the rod, creating again, a beautiful vase. And as it cools, he begins to add new details from what was previously dirty, shattered, disformed. So the shape here is still the same but the new details display more certainly and clearly his intentions for the thing he created. So you see what happens here is the maker God using the waters of the flood to remake the vase of this world. And in this scene with great precision, he speaks new detail into the purpose of Noah and his world. 
Because when we ask the big question of, in a world of death, what can bring new life? We get the answer of a God who can recreate. So in the ultimate act of the God who recreates comes when Jesus steps into history. In Jesus, the command to be fruitful and multiply multiply is fulfilled perfectly. In Jesus, the dominion that God sets for humanity is actually handled with sincerity and flourishing rather than savagery and foul play. In Jesus, we see the psalmist's deepest longing fulfilled as he describes in Psalm 8, 6, that the proper dominion is in his hands and that all things are under his feet. And as God gave Noah everything, he has given Jesus all things. That in Jesus, we can experience the God who recreates by taking death and swallowing it up in resurrection life. Therefore, reordering and repurposing and proving to us the intentions of humanity. So friends, if we are in Jesus, the blessing of God is upon us and we can experience the recreating power of God in every inch of our life, not just personally my Bible and me, but we can, we can experience the recreating power of God in the most earthy ways between you and how you, you view the environment, between you and how you care for creation and for animals, between you and how you work, between you and how you play, between you and how you cook and how you experience food. God wants to recreate all of that. And he has a purpose and an intention and a direction for it. So we participate with God, the God who is recreating all things through Jesus. So with a pleasing aroma, we get the God who recreates. But what you might ask is what about the loss of life? Like it's circling in the back of my mind this entire time that God destroyed the earth and there was so much loss. Death still lingers even now, there's still loss. Where is the value in life? Where is it? So look with me at the last scene in this divine speech. So, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. And for you, your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. So now, as we come to this closing scene, our attention is drawn to God's concern for blood. In in short, we can see four different times that the word blood is used here, but it's not used alone. As we can begin to see, God makes the stronger connection between blood and life. And God uses the phrase life 
that is its blood. So God starts with the emphasis here though on animal life, but narrows his focus intently on the precious life of man. In short, God's prohibition on eating the blood of a, of a live animal or eating the blood of an animal actually signals to us the sacredness and the preciousness of life. So when his original hearers would have heard that, they would have been keen towards God actually cares about life because life is in the blood. So this desire for the sacredness of life and particularly blood and life comes with the bleak backdrop of the narrative of Genesis so far. And as we recall, Cain and Abel and the blood of Abel crying out from the ground should be triggering here for us. Where Abel's blood did not receive a life for the loss of his, God's emphasis on the sacredness of life here he will now require a life for a life. So God's motivation to never again flood the earth is revealed clearly to us through the reality of the depraved humanity continuing in his image and him expressing to them as his image bearers, the importance and the status and the reality of, I care about life. I care about your life. I care about the life of these animals, but even more specifically, I care about the life of you. So the image of God, the blood God created that is coursing through our veins was given to us by the creator God and we bear his image. So the honoring of the image of God in one another is to display through God's protection of the beating heart in each other. So let me say that again, because it's a mouthful. The honoring of the image of God in one another is displayed through God's protection of the beating heart in each other. So he's expressing to them now that they're taking dominion over the earth again, that they're being called to be fruitful and multiply that life matters. This isn't okay. This isn't how it's going to be going forward, how I want it to be going forward. This is the desire of my heart. So though the text actually assumes that violence will continue because he has to say in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. It anticipates here the assumption that God knows the intentions of man's heart are still evil. But even in the midst of God drawing a line in the sand on taking life, we can still taste and see something God is offering us. If we thought that we cared more about life than God, this passage shows us his desire for life. And whose hands would you rather have the preciousness of life in? Yours? or his, whose hands? Life from him far exceeds ours and is meant to permeate every square inch of the human heart and the earth. Life was meant to permeate every square inch of the human heart and the earth. 
Because God, he himself is life. Why would he not care for it in his image? So when we consider the big question again, in a world of death, what can bring new life? We see a God of life. God wouldn't express this to them if it wasn't in the deepest recesses of his own heart. He is a God of life. So as we all know, life throughout the scriptures was not honored and has not been honored and still to this day does not show honor. But God's desire to preserve it, though it was not followed, it can be and is being redeemed. Blood was constantly shed to make right what God's people could not amend on their own with God, a life for a life. And as we trace this theme of life in the blood through the pages of scripture, we come to Jesus. And as the text here says, God did have to reckon a life for a life. Jesus says to a crowd in the gospel of John, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And this is appalling to the hearers at the time because this story from Noah would have been in the back of their minds. They would have had the sacredness of life formed and this Jesus is saying, if you don't eat my flesh and if you don't drink my blood, you don't have life. But, but what they missed and what we cannot miss is blood has been shed through history. Sin is coursed through the veins of humanity, taking life after life, and God has to reckon with it because the loss of life was so much and he values it too much. Therefore, one man, Jesus, on a single night to those closest to him, sat at a table and he said to them, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood poured out for you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you have life because you are in me. And as we partake in Jesus, we are saying that he is enough, that he was the life that was reckoned for our life and every life that has been lost since and prior. And as the text ends with God telling Noah to be fruitful and multiply, which he did, which we will see as we continue through the pages of Genesis that the, the people of Israel grow to a great number, the things have multiplied that humanity still in some ways <laughs> images God well and in other ways doesn't. We come to Jesus we come to Jesus and we see that we are being invited into him to be fruitful and multiply in him across this world. Because in him, being fruitful and multiplying is done and fulfilled perfectly. So here in a second, you will have a chance to come to this table and you have a chance to see and to taste the God of life.
So as we close, the atomic bomb of Jesus has actually detonated in history. The cross has shed his blood for us and resurrection life reverberates in the aftermath of the empty tomb and then a world of death, sin, and decay. So we need texts like this to remind us of that very reality. That there is a God who smells a pleasing aroma of one sacrifice, that sacrifice being Jesus. And if you are in him, that God is recreating. And if you are in him, that God is giving you life and he values life and he values your life. So because God's heart is for us and the world, we can receive new life. And this story tells us that. And as some popular lyrics, Christian lyrics go, he, he turns mourning to dancing. He gives beauty for ashes. He turns shame into glory because he's the only one who can. He turns graves into gardens and he turns bones into armies. And he turns seas into highways because he's the only one who can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means to our faith. We thank you for what it means to our community. We thank you that you have given us Jesus, that you are pleased in him and therefore pleased with us if we are in him and that you are recreating us and changing us and making us more into his image and his likeness. We pray now for those here who are struggling, for those here who are needing to know the life that you have, we pray that they would find it deeply in you today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.